Good morning. Glad you're here this morning, ready to dig into God's Word. Open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, a couple of verses out of that first section we were in uh, tells us something awesome about our salvation. Look down toward that section where we were in uh, chapter 1, in verse 13, 12, 13, and 14. It says, giving thanks. How many of you gave thanks for someone that you might not have given thanks for? Normally, this morning. A few of you, that's right. We say give thanks, right? And not stop praying. Do not stop praying. Our reason for doing that, our reason, as the screen says, to look to the future with hope. The reason we have hope is even in what we just sang. It's not because of who we are in and of ourselves, but because of the very character of God and how that character is expressed in the Bible and in His gospel. Look at uh, verses 12, 13, and 14, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers. We talked about that last night. How did that happen? Verse 13, he delivered us from the power of darkness. In other words, until this happens, you are owned, captured, and controlled by the power of darkness. And I'm not saying that to freak you out, okay, if you sit here not sure of where you're at and whether you've really been qualified, but it's just a fact. I was born underneath the power of darkness. And if you're under that power, you cannot change that. You cannot remove yourself. This takes an absolute act of God. That's what salvation is all about. And he says, he removes us from that power of darkness and conveys us into the kingdom of the son of his love. He puts us underneath his son, Jesus Christ. The one that he loves, he loves, he loves, that's what it means here, just constantly he's loving. And because he's loving the Son, the Father is that way, what happens is he then, if you're underneath that kingdom, you are being loved, loved, loved. That's why the saints and Colossae were people of faith and love, because they knew, I'm being loved, therefore I can love the awkward, difficult, prickly, I don't like people in front of me, right? The ones you just don't naturally connect with. I can love them. I can love those who do harm to me. And, and you will choose in Christ to do that because you're in a different kingdom. When he put us in his kingdom, what happened was he paid for you. And that's what happened on the cross. He put the payment down that enabled you to come out of that kingdom. It's called redemption. He paid for that and puts you in his kingdom underneath Jesus Christ. When by faith you trust him. And it would be one thing, and I said this even Sunday out of Ephesians, it'd be one thing to be redeemed and God say, yeah, I paid for them, and they're kind of a schmuck. You know what I mean? If he just looked at them like, eh, kind of lousy. But he doesn't. He both redeems us, and the next part of the verse says, he forgives us. Which means he stamps totally paid, there is no debt, this person owes me nothing. Isn't that crazy? I mean, think about what you've done wrong. If you're as old as I am, it's enormous. I'm pretty sure I've outsend most all the teenagers here because I've had a lot longer time to do it. And my sin, most all of it, because at five I came to Christ, I did my sin already being in his kingdom, already knowing him. And I think when a Christian sins, it's far more despicable than when someone who's in the kingdom of darkness sins. A lot of times we as Christians get a little haughty and judgmental looking at people that haven't believed and say, but they are terrible. I'm like, Really? Because I'm impatient, and I have the power that raised Christ from the dead, and I'm basically ignoring him, blaspheming him, and pushing him out of the way. 
I would call that incredibly bad. I don't even have words for it. So we look at this this morning. If we're going to look to the future with hope, we have to understand what God has done for us right there. This morning, a guy texted me pretty early, and I was sitting in my chair, reviewing the Word of God, praying, spending time, and he said, I'm praying for you. But you have to understand, one year ago, in the back of this chapel, at a family camp, this gentleman came to me, his wife came to my wife, and confessed for him the first time, confessed that pornography's been running his life for the longest of time. And his wife confessed that she had been there too. And by the way, I understand pornography is not a guy thing. Okay? Not in your world. You've been so conditioned by everything around you as young ladies that now pictorial porn, not just relational porn, grabs you on a regular basis because you've been targeted by the kingdom of darkness. And so you have to have a defense. So this marriage had both sides of it. She had submitted herself to Christ and gotten clean. This guy comes to me for help. And we met almost weekly, all year, online, because we live a long way apart. And uh, he's, he's been walking out of all of that sin, that, that darkness. He, he was redeemed from that. He already knew that when he met me. He's already forgiven. It's like, why are you going back to the toilet? What are you doing? But we've all done it, right? And one sin or another, we do that. Understand, he, but he determined, and his wife loved him, walked right alongside of him, and now he's somebody vibrantly working in his church right walking with christ this is this is what we've been put in and if you've trusted christ savior that's what you have it's a matter of grabbing hold of the very truths that are in this passage today's passage if you walk forward in uh, chapter 3 verses 15 through 23 it's really going to give you an understanding and a motivation this isn't a sermon that you necessarily respond to by going and doing something i like sermons like that I think we have to preach sermons that just put us in awe. Sometimes we just need to sit back and go, whoa. I, I think that's a theological term. Can you say that one with me? Whoa. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm kind of simple. That's what I know. But when I look at God and his word and I see what he's done and who he is, I, it just makes me go, whoa. I, I, and which kind of usually means stop, right? I got to quit doing that and, and just be in awe of what he's providing. And so that's what this passage is, should do this morning. And you know, some of you came to camp and you want to learn how to study God's Word. So look at verse 15. What are the first two words in verse 15? Give it to me. Okay, we got several versions of the Bible. ESV says, He is. Okay, go down. And uh, verse 18, how does it start? And He is. That should be a little like marker for you. Now, in those two verses, verse 15 and verse 18, there's another repeated word. What is it? Look carefully. This is how you study Scripture. You've got to see how the author is laying it out, kind of making his point. So he is, what's the other repeated word? Firstborn. That's right. And so there's really two ideas. So if your pastor preached this passage and gave three points, he'd be wrong. No, I'm just kidding. He might have a different way of doing it. But there's really just two things happening here. And it's defining who Christ is, this one who is loved by the Father, who has given us this redemption by his blood. This is who he is. And it says, he is. And, and so in our response, we need to know that Christ is, that he is God over all. And it says in this passage that he's firstborn. Firstborn, actually in the original language, means firstborn. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's not too technical. But the idea is probably a little different than we think. We think of someone being born, 
okay, like having birth. But what it's saying is that there's a primariness to who Christ is. And so there's something that he's primary over, ahead of, supreme of. And there's two ideas in this passage where Christ is different than any of us. Different than anyone else. Okay, that's what it's saying. And so let's look at those two things because they absolutely move us. Just look at the scripture. He is the image. He's one person has said the likeness but not the brightness because Christ didn't come in the spirit and the light of glory. One day we'll be there with him. But he is the likeness, the image of the invisible God. See, the Godhead, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see all of them in Colossians being talked about. And Christ, as he came, he is in the image of God, which means he is definitely God. He's God the Son. And he, he is the firstborn of all creation, which means he was primary ahead of anything else that was made. Because he was not created. He is God. He is. And yet he came to earth as human, so there's a sense or an idea of being created, isn't it? Because he became human flesh. But that's different, primary, unique from any other human. What happened with Jesus Christ? So that's what it's saying here. And you have to know these things because if you're not going to be rocked by the world and how they view or what they make as God, you have to know who Christ is. So he is that image. And it says, here's the things that make him unique. They're just kind of rapid fire, but they are huge. First of all, he created, well, if you got your pen out, start circling all. Look at verse 15. All. Verse 16. All. End of verse 16. All. Verse 17. All. Verse 17. All. I think this, this is... This is about a all as you can get, okay? I mean, there's, <laughs> because he's first and primary unique, there is nothing else that can touch this. Nothing else that's even close to who Christ is. And so it says, he created all things that are, and it would be impressive if he created everything that was on earth and in the universe. I mean, is that not impressive? Well, what was the theological word you learned this morning? Yeah, Phil's, Phil's amazed. He, he's like, I think he wanted to make sure I was up this morning. So at 6.50, he sent me a picture. You should be out here because it is so beautiful. And I'm like, Phil, I'm praying. You know, I tried to make him feel bad. You know, no, it was awesome. Even a picture was awesome. I'm like, oh, I wanted to be there. But I needed to be thinking with Jesus first. I'll, I'll enjoy it later. The creation is just like, just around us. But he made everything in heaven. You ever been there? Yeah, me either. And if you say you were, you're lying. Um... You know, have you seen uh, and created, he created all the angels. And we just sometimes, every once in a while, wonder if someone is an angel or a demon. Depending, well, you, well, you haven't been to Africa and you haven't ministered where I've ministered and seen the effects of satanic influence. It happens at times. And it's going to happen more and more in America as there's less and less restrainer among us because there's fewer Christians. You're going to understand, he made everything. Nothing is supreme above Jesus Christ. Because it came from him. So he created all. And then this is the one that, that just should change your life. And it says, and all creation, all things. How many things? So he created what? And all things that were created through him and, what does it say? For him. 
He made you just the way you are. Too big a nose, weird toes, I don't care what it is, okay? He made you just the way you are. Your limitations and your excellencies, he made all of it not for you. You were made for him. You say, I don't even believe in him. Doesn't matter. He made you, and he made you for himself. You say, well, that's kind of selfish and big. No, when you're God, there's no selfishness. Because you are so supreme and so glorious and so wonderful that you deserve. I mean, God loves himself. Do you understand that? And it's correct. Because there's nothing like him. And this verse just plainly saying, you were made for him. How many days have you gotten up and said, okay, Lord, your day, your body, your mind, what do you want? You know, no, we spend our time saying, I should be able to get a tattoo. Really? We're worried about trying to answer that? Like, why do we even have time to think about that? And, and I don't care if you have a tattoo. Honestly, Jesus has one. You read the book of Revelation. But it's not about whether we have a tattoo, okay? It, you don't read the Bible? Well, you go back and study that a little bit. Anyway, <laughs> you are his. And you need to be able to answer it. The, the primary question is, if he made me for himself, then I need to get with his program, whatever that is. So you have to come back tonight for that because this message isn't about it. But he made you for that. How disgusting if you don't do that. You know what I mean? Like I have two German short hair pointers. One of them, this is really good, Baptist preacher with a dog named Licker. But his name is Jaeger, okay? And you shouldn't know what that is, okay? I live in Wisconsin, though. We know that stuff, okay? So his real name is Jaegermeister. That means master hunter. And, uh, but he can't hunt at all. Somebody abused him. Somebody gave him to us to try and wreck me and my spirituality because I wanted to kill him. You know what I mean? And my daughter pled on his behalf and said, no, right? But there is something dis distinctly wrong with that animal because a German shorthair is made to hunt. They have all this fantastic body that goes a thousand miles an hour without respite and they don't care what happens to themselves. They bounce off barbed wire and they just keep going and everything just carry that nose and provide me with the perfect shot. That's what it's about. And this dog, I'm like, Jaeger, let's go hunting. He runs in the other room. If I get the shotgun out, he's in my daughter's bed. Seriously. He is worthless for what God made him. I do think probably God made him for some other things because my daughter smiles a lot because of my, I don't know. If we don't do what God made us for, something is really, really wrong. How blasphemous is that? How ungodly, living like God doesn't exist, is it that we wake up morning after morning and never consider, God, what do you want from me? And even worse, when we walk around and go, I hate myself. We all do that at one point or another. Or we look at ourselves and we're like, I think those people, they don't like me. Who cares what those people think? You weren't made for them. You were made for God. And you're like, I hope she kisses me. You weren't made for her. You were made for God, for his plan, what he wants. And you're worried about her? I mean, scratch that this week. You heard that from Sam. It's a brand new Christian. He gets it. He didn't even read this chapter yet. And he just knows, I am to follow the king. 
So, I mean, girls are going to be somewhere way down the list for him. It's God's primary. That's who he was made for. And that's who, chapter 1 said, redeemed him and made him have inheritance qualification. That's what God made you for. So quit hating your body, your mind, your lack of skills. Quit thinking big about who you are. Because if God made you big in whatever area, let me tell you, he made you that for himself, not you. This distinctly changes our view of ourself and our image or our identity. Are you feeling me? I mean, that's, that's what it's doing. It changes everything. He says in this passage, he's firstborn of all these things, and he is before all these things. He says all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. This is significant because if you believe in anything other than Jesus, I just have to keep asking you, so then where did all this come from? And I don't care what you itemize or what you say, I'm going to say, and what was before that? Because it's illogical that something comes out of nothing unless there is something bigger than the nothing. Are you following that logic? And God is the bigger than the nothing because he is before all. You say, but he exists. That's right. He's God. It's the only logical conclusion, and yet you won't believe it by logic. I didn't. You believe it by faith. That's what the word means. However, that faith is not founded on quicksand. It's founded on truth that God must be before all these things, or else it doesn't make sense where it came from. Does that make sense to you now? You're seeing it? So he predates all this. That's essential if you're going to be made for him and follow him. And he holds everything together. He's literally the glue. In him, all things consist. I have some friends that are incredibly blasphemous. I, I, because you should be loving all kinds of people. I have friends that are they're just disgusting in some of the things that they would say and do with their life. It does not fit with God at all. But know this. God holds them together. And in graciousness, he holds the world around them. And he patiently waits so I can do the mission he made me for. That they might hear again. And maybe believe. God holds it all together. You say, but I don't like the way it shaped my life. Understand this. It may be messy. Most of our lives are, but God is holding that together. It's part of his plan because he holds all things together. Things are not held together by science. All science is is trying to describe the holding of God. And it does a fairly good job on many points, but it always lacks something because God is very dynamic. And he's not just mathematical. He holds everything together. If we're going to live with hope, looking at that future, we have to know that God is over all. And if this week, start with, God is over me. Right? Start there. Second thing, because there's another and he is, we have to, if we're going to live and look to the future with hope, it requires us to know that Christ is head of the church. I think I grew up pretty good with knowing that he's over all and actually had it modeled a lot for me. As my family left everything they knew, my dad went to Bible college with four children, and I watched my parents submit to Jesus, go through some hard ministry things, and my dad never asked me to be a pastor, never even encouraged me to be a pastor. You say, that's weird. No, 
Because he knew if someone's going to be a pastor, that has to be a God thing, not a dad thing, right? Matter of fact, I didn't want to be a pastor when I was younger. I, was, I, was, I told you last night, I thought church was bogus. So point two, I had to come to grips with. And that is God not only created all things, holds everything together, but he is firstborn of the church, which means he predates the church and, and he causes the church. Look at verse 18. It says he is the head of the body, the church. He's head, not your pastor, not your deacons, not you. He's head. Sometimes there's this grave disconnect between pastor. I can say this because I was one. Grave disconnect between head, Jesus, and the leadership because we're human. It's tough. We just need to, when you see your church struggling, know this. Jesus is head of your church. If your church teaches the gospel, believes these things, they are church, okay? And Jesus is head. And you need to trust Jesus with his body. You do. I didn't see any of you playing uh, dodgeball, and I saw some weird dodgeball, but, but I saw some good dodgeball, okay? I didn't see any of you pick up a ball and go, and your head go, I wonder what my body is going to do. You didn't do that. I mean, in one fluid motion, some of you are just killing people, right? Because your head, your body, there's no distinction. It just goes together. We have to understand, that's the way God intends church, that Christ is head. He's head, he's first over it, he's primary, he's the ruler. It says, he is the beginning, when that verse 18, when it says, he's the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning? That's talking about Jesus on that part. He is the beginning of the church. He literally created the church. It's his idea. You say, well, I don't like his idea. It doesn't matter. We had to submit to that. And I, let me tell you, I've been a part of church that it was very uncomfortable and difficult. But it's his church. He created it. And I need to care about it. He says, secondly, he says he's the firstborn from the dead. Because what makes us the church is that we have died in Jesus and we know that we are going to be alive after we're dead. Or we're going to get raptured. One of the two. Right? After this world, we're going to, are you going to be alive? You should be a lot more excited about that. Because if all we have is death, this life is pointless. I mean, pointless. So I could do really good things. Yeah, then you die. I mean, if this is it, that's just ridiculous. And it says that in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way. By the way, your generation understands that better than my generation or my parents' generation. My parents' generation thought if we just accumulate enough money, we'll be successful and life is good. And my generation thought, well, if we can just control things and build, and, uh, and they're all living in the present. And I think your generation's a bit more thoughtful, actually. And you're grappling with things a lot more that I didn't grapple with when I was your age. And you're actually right. You need to grapple with this. And you need to say, if death, if death is it, what's the point? And that's why there's a lot of suicide. Because it, it becomes logical. It's wrong. And it's, not, it's incomplete because there's a truth that tells us something very different. That Christ is head of the church. And he's firstborn from the dead. You say, there were people in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, that were risen from the dead. Jesus was not first. Yeah, but he was the first in a brand new way, which is what the verse is saying. Because he was raised to righteousness. That's the way we're going to be raised, right? I mean, when I come back from the dead, I will no longer sin. Amen? 
The only way I can do that before now is to become an Alzheimer's person who doesn't know what they're doing, right? And I don't really want to do that. I mean, I, I want to be free from sin. I'm tired of that battle. I hate it. He says, huh, he's firstborn. There is only righteousness, never a fault. And he's firstborn from the dead, never to die again. See, Lazarus, he was risen from the dead. I wonder how he thought about that. He had to endure dying two times. That seems kind of bad. Like, really? I got that over with. Although maybe it's not as weird the second time. I don't know. To ask him in heaven. Right? But see, if, if someone's raised from the dead now, they, they still die again. But not Jesus. Risen from the dead. Raised into heaven. He is the picture of what exactly is going to happen to us. That's why you can have confidence. He's the head of the church. Why? Verse 18 and 19 tells us because he is God. He says he's risen from the dead, firstborn from the dead, that in all, we're back to that word again, all things he may have preeminence, that he be first, foremost, primary. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness, there's that word again, all the fullness should dwell. Literally, who God really was, all of it, the substance of God's character, the Father's character, was in Jesus when he was on earth. Wow. That's why we know Christ is God. And by the way, some of the cults that would deny Christ as God, they don't use these verses. They try and take you to other ones. These verses are, they're just solid. They pound it. Okay, so you need to know these things. And he says, and by him to reconcile, and that word is the idea that he reconciles it and it's done, all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now that sounds really good. And the reason it sounds so nice is because Paul was writing believers. So he was kind of emphasizing the believer side of that. And so we should do that. Okay, he's definitely God. And we should, you know, look at these things and realize, oh my goodness, he made peace with me by the blood of his cross. I'm golden. If you believe, that's true. But understand this, God, having sent Christ, the fullness of God, to earth, and having had him die on the cross and be raised and ascended, he will reconcile all things. But you know, a reconciliation is an accounting term, it's a ledger. And there's two sides to this ledger. In Colossians, he only emphasizes the one that by the blood of the cross, we have this inheritance, and as Christians, we're like, yes, yes, this is good, and we should. But understand, there's another side to the ledger. And that is, God himself came to earth and died for you. And he will reconcile you. Because God is so over all, above all, Christ is, that things have to be set straight. So you can disown Christ and spit in his face your whole life. But understand this, it will be reconciled. You will bend the knee. And you will bend it in hell. That's, what, that's the reconciliation here. Because not everybody is reconciled to an inheritance and to glory. True? No. He sets the record straight and says, Christ is all. You were made for him. You chose to not think that. So now you will be punished and you will worship him from hell. Because that's what happens. You bend the knee. And in your torment, you honor Christ because he deserves it. And see, we don't think of God this way. Because we think of life in terms of us. That's what we, na I mean, it's the way we come. If I hit your hand with a hammer, you will think of you. I mean, that's the way we're made, okay? 
but it needs fixing. That's just fleshly. That's just human. And God didn't call us to be fleshly and human. He called us to be spiritual, to understand whose we are and what He's done for us. As believers, we have this reconciliation. He reconciles all. And He literally, for the second time in the book, says He preaches to all. If you go further down in the end of verse 23, it says, which was preached to every creature, that's the same word all, by the way, preached to all creatures under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, God, through creation, through the coming of His Son, through the fact that every nation, tribe, tongue, He says, every single one will have representation in heaven because God sends to all, all who seek Him, all that He redeemed, He's, he's going to bring to Himself. His, his witness everywhere. He's head of the church because he is all God. He's definitely God. And because he will reconcile. How does he do that? Through the blood of his cross, his death. And then lastly, as we look at this passage in verse 21, 22, and it says, and you, this is those who are reconciled. You who were alienated and enemies. By the way, this is why I know there's a second page to the reconciliation. Because he's, he's hinting at it here. He says, this is what you were. You were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled. And again, he says, reconciled. Done deal. You're never outside of that as a believer. You should say amen to that. I know I didn't maybe say it well, but understand this. The fact that you are always at peace with God, even in your wicked days, you should, I mean, is there any other relationship like that? I mean, even my dad is like thinking, you know, at some points, he wants to. He restrains himself. But he, has, he could have anger with me. But, but God, because of the blood of Christ, that's how supreme Christ is and what he, what he did. God the Father looks at your sin as totally covered, totally paid, no longer enemy because of what Christ did in his body through death. And what happens? It says he presents you holy. You're set apart. He presents you blameless. That means no blemish. You say, but this morning I thought an immoral thought. I had covetousness. I had hate. Because as Christians, we're capable of all those things, aren't we? He looks at us and he says, yeah, but this is how God, because of the blood of Christ, that's how supreme he says, he looks at you without blemish. Somebody who gives me that gift and who has made me for them, I have to respond. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you what your response is to be exactly. You're big people with the Spirit of God in you. I want you to think about that. If I'm made for Him. And he is, He's made me without blemish. I mean, that's the word for the sheep or the goat that was sacrificed, right? No blemish. He says, and above reproach, literally every accusation slides off. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. You say, oh, there, I knew it. So if I have a day that I'm not quite believing, then I lose all of this. No, that's not what the if means there. It means if you continue in the faith and you do. It's that kind of class or condition, okay? And you have to, we don't do grammar so much anymore. So I'm trying to help us understand what it means. So he's saying, if you have this faith and you do, these things are true. You are grounded, steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope. If that's what your faith is, 
And he says, and it is. Why is it that way? Because they're really redeemed. Now, my question to you is, do you have that kind of faith? One author says, continuance is a test of reality. So my continuing faith does not save me. It does not keep me blameless, my continuing faith. My continuing faith is there because I have believed, for real. It remains because that's who I really am. But there's a nice little tension there that causes us, I don't know, it causes me to plead with God and say, what is wrong with my faith? Because I see non-continuance. I see me not steadfast. I see me moved by sin and distraction. And he says, well, but you're talking about it with me, aren't you? Yes, I am. Because you're mine. Now quit messing around and let's be steadfast right here. I mean, that's what the scripture is telling you. God would look at you and say, all of this, that he's creator of the church and that he's creator of you and all things for himself and that he predates everything. All of this is true. Just one line. Some of you have been sleeping the whole time and it's okay. Camp is exhausting. So get this one line, okay? In all things that he may have the preeminence. You see that? So here's your homework. You're about to go outside. And your homework is give Christ the preeminence in everything. If he has preeminence, it literally means no rival. Nothing rivals him. Everything is beneath him in your life. Everything's less than him. This takes a constant exercising. Because things just, it's like, to me, it's like fine sand that just creeps in. You know? I don't know how it even gets there. All of a sudden, I realize I have things in my life that are competing with God. It's ridiculous. Because, I mean, look at all we said about him. It'd be ridiculous to let something be above him. So your questions. Because I love the way camps run here. They're going to they're gonna let you go outside, slow down, have some help, think, process, pray. And then go like mad the rest of the day. It's good. And it's great. It's like a little test bubble. Think about all these things. Think about rival and say, okay, no rival to Jesus today. Because camp is real. It's not fake life. It's real. It's just different shape. And go and try and practice there being no rival. In order to do that, I think these three questions help you. Get one thing, give one thing you're in awe of about God. I, I began to learn this from an old guy. He was like 50. <laughs> I'm, two year, I'm one year from that uh, next month. And so this old guy at camp, he's like 50, and he'd sit with us. I was on work staff because my dad worked there, which meant I was a camp brat. And I was sitting there at 6 in the morning, got to sweep the gym. That was my job. And it was Florida. There's sand everywhere in the gym every day. So we had to sweep the gym, and he'd sit us down, and he'd look at us, and he'd say, have you told Jesus you love him today? I'm like, no, I just rolled out of my bunk, and I don't even tell my mother I love her. <laughs> you know, this is what I'm thinking the first day I met this guy. I'm like, this guy's a kook, you know. I don't, I don't love anything except me. <laughs> that was accurate. But he just wore me down, because every day, you could just tell. I mean, he's, he's there, early retired, giving his life to this camp, loving his wife. I'm watching him around camp. I'm realizing, this man, this man's in love with Jesus. I just have never thought about Jesus in that way. I've never thought about that he, he made me for him and that I'm part of that all binding together with him. So I'm just telling you, go outside and tell Jesus you love him and give some reason from here. Because like my wife, she's telling me, do you love me? 
I'm like, yes, ma'am. Sometimes I say, yes, ma'am, because God told me I had to. <laughs> so that's not very romantic. And she usually hits me, too. And I, and I say, oh, you want the romantic answer? Because I have some of those. But, but truly, one day she said, do you, do you love me? I said, yeah, because Jesus told me I have to, because she asked why. And she goes, I'm so glad that's true, because I've been a real pain today. And she knew it, man, I was going to love her no matter what, right? God is never a pain. Look at the stuff in this passage. Tell him you love him. Tell him why. Okay, and then it's, it's sleep, it seeps in. What rivals God? What ideas, what desires, what people, what stuff? I don't know what it is, but it's got to go. You can read the last question, but it has everything to do with faith. And a faith that's established by real love.